Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you here today to uh, this public lecture of the Department of Media and Communications. Uh, I'm Sonia Livingstone. I'm a professor in the department. And today we have uh, a lively debate ahead of us. The days of industrial society seem long past, but what is the nature of the so-called information society? And how should it be managed? We feel we live on the cusp of social change as we strive to accommodate each new digital innovation, each shift in our familiar patterns of working, learning and communicating at all levels from the intimate to the global. But whose interests are being served? And who is shaping the information society? And what does it mean for the rest of us? Today we're also here to announce and celebrate the publication of a new book, Robin Mansell's Imagining the Internet, published by Oxford University Press. When anyone sets out to write a book, they must imagine their audience. Who might read the book? Who should read the book? Some of us write for the scholars who already agree with us, a fairly easy task. Some of us write for our students, a much more demanding task. Some of us write for everyone and anyone, probably a doomed enterprise. Professor Mansell, however, has chosen an interesting readership and one of the most difficult, for she wishes to bring the insights of her own very significant body of scholarship to a multidisciplinary audience of scholars and policymakers, including those who believe that technologies are neutral rather than political in their effects, those who believe the social is just noise obscuring the larger workings of the market or politics, and those who believe that the natural and physical and the social and even human sciences have nothing to say to each other. Can she convince the diverse constituencies currently fascinated by technological innovation that a conversation across disciplines is fruitful, even necessary? This evening, Professor Mansell will examine the significant challenges facing policymakers as they try to balance conflicting interests in the information society. She's going to speak for about 25 minutes, and then we'll hear two short responses from Professors Dutton and Wade. Then we'll have about half an hour of questions for you, today's multidisciplinary audience. And then the Department of Media and Communication is pleased to host a reception and book signing in the foyer just outside this hall. So let me briefly introduce tonight's speakers. Robin Mansell is Professor of New Media and the Internet in the Department of Media and Communication at the LSE. She's trained in several disciplines, including psychology, social psychology, politics, and economics. And her research examines how and why people communicate with each other and how it makes a difference that their relationships are mediated by the use of information and communication technologies. She has particular expertise in social, political and economic influences on media and communication policy and regulation, including the governance arrangements being developed for the Internet. A recent president of the International Association for Media and Communication Research, Professor Mansell has chaired a series of significant scientific committees in the UK, Europe and internationally, and she's produced the landmark handbooks of global media and communication policy, of the Information Society and the Oxford Handbook of Information and Communication Technologies, the handbooks that have in many ways shaped this field. Our first response will be from uh, Bill Dutton, 
William Dutton is Professor of Internet Studies at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, where he was the founding director, and he's a professorial fellow of Balliol College. He leads the Oxford eScience Project and the Oxford Internet Surveys and is currently working on the concept of a fifth estate enabled by the Internet, the rise of collaborative network organisations and the diffusion and implications of innovations in e-research. His handbook on Internet Studies will be published soon. (coughs) Professor Robert Wade, who is um, sitting so he can see the slides just there, Um, is Professor of Political Economy and Development at the Department of International Development here at the LSE. He's worked at the Institute of Development Studies in Sussex, the World Bank, MIT's Sloan School and Brown University. He researches globalization and trends in world poverty, the functioning of multilateral economic organizations, and industrial and technology policies, especially in developing countries, And he's the author of an award-winning book, Governing the Market, Economic Theory and the Role of Government in East Asia's Industrialization. So it gives me great pleasure now to ask uh, Professor Mansell to, I think you're going to talk from up there, and uh, we look forward to your talk. Thank you. some new technology, I'm going to wander around. (laughs) Good evening, everybody. How do we imagine our social existence in what I'm going to refer to as the age of the internet? I might have said the age of the network society or the digital age. And how do we imagine our social existence in this time of networks? One way that we might imagine our existence is what we've all come to know as the mapping of where we are in space and time. We're here in the new academic building, are we not? Yes. But who else knows you are here? Do you even care who else knows you are here? What social norms, what values are informing our thoughts about whether or not we should live in a more intensely mediated internet environment where our movements are followed. Our thoughts are not followed. Maybe we are able to keep them private. But anything that we express in text or visually today can be monitored and watched. So when I think about this and many of the other developments that are supported by the new digital technologies. I tried to think in my book about how I could think about this from a very different set of disciplinary perspectives. The idea of the social imaginary has a very long history. It doesn't start with C. Wright Mills, social imagination, but it certainly in the 1940s and 50s was a key term. Borgia has used the notion of the imaginary. So it has a long history on the left, in a way, and on the right. And I wanted to not take one pathway or the other pathway, as some of you who know me well will understand. So I chose to use the term social imaginaries, as has been developed by the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. And when he talks about the imaginary, he talks about how do people imagine their social existence. How do you 
about how people fit together with others. How do you think about how things go on between people? How do you think about the kinds of expectations you have online or offline? Are they met or are they not met? What are the deeper normative notions <coughs> that in this second decade of the 21st century are really the ones which are informing the way our lives are mediated in what I'm calling the internet age? Those are pretty profound questions. And so that was a question which caused me to take 10 years to write this book. Um, it wasn't simple to cause myself to have some answers. What I thought I would do tonight is take you through a quick history of where some of the ideas, some of the norms and values which have become dominant and some of the alternative norms and values have come from and where we are today. And then I want to point out some pretty profound conflicts, which are enduring conflicts, between some of the values which we come to take for granted in our expectations about the imaginary of the internet and how our lives are lived and how some of those conflicts get in the way or inform policymaking. So I thought, thought I'd start with a quick rush through the 1930s and the 1940s and 60s. In this pre-internet age, it wasn't pre-networks, but it was in this early age when people started to focus on information processing, how fast, how many quantities of information can you process with advanced technologies? Can you control technology? On uh, your left is a picture from the 1930s of how a Belgian uh, librarian envisaged our relationship to what became television. In the middle, we have a picture of how Vannevar Bush, an American scientist in, in the post-war period, thought about how we might control and process information. You see that little thing in the center of his, his skull. It is reminiscent of what came to be followed today as surveillance technologies. But he was most in, interested in control of information. And so what effectively happened during those decades was that people thought, about, thought machine dreams. They thought about how information processing and automation would provide a means of enabling human beings to gain control over their environment. Not just their mediated environment, but their physical environment as well. That was a very strong theme, and it's not one that has gone away. If we fast forward up to the present, where have we arrived? In the bottom right there, well, that's iconic image of an iPhone or a smartphone. Today, some of the focus when we think about the Internet age has shifted substantially towards content. Digital content is everything. We talk about mashups, we talk about a participatory culture, we talk about greater and greater choice, we talk about free content as well as paid content and other ways of uh, producing content. Traditional film, as the dial on the left-hand side shows you, traditional kinds of media haven't gone away. The dial is reminiscent of the old style of telephone. We still have traditional radio, television, we still have, dare I say it, printed newspapers. But we have very much moved into an era in where there's so many people assuming that user-generated content is liberating us 
that we can all become participants in the culture. The imaginary, if you like, is shifting to one where it's almost as if the zeitgeist is one of, of empowerment for every individual and human being, as long as they have the ability to get online and to participate in an internet era. So digital convergence and digital content have come to preoccupy the minds of, of many scholars. And when you think about the developments that go along with that sense of empowerment, the increasing notion that bottom-up participatory action is enabled by the Internet, of course, there are many, many good things, potentially good things, that come of these kinds of developments. So here I am simply signposting a very few of those where digital hardware, software has been brought into service in terms potentially of enabling improved well-being of populations. D for D stands for data for development. The mapping activities that are going on, whether to map water, sanitation, (coughs) housing, land ownership in many countries around the world is providing information for grassroots activists. Small computers are being brought to poor populations so that literacy can be developed. In the top, I don't think I need to probably tell this audience too much about the Arab Spring, but the new Facebook platforms and many other social media are seen as enabling grassroots movements. The bottom is uh, just a picture of of mapping activity using a mobile phone, not all about the internet, um, in Kibera, which is a slum area, in Nairobi. So there's many good things that come out of these developments. Here's another one, just plucked out of the air. I I could tell you stories about hundreds and hundreds of enabling developments. This one is using an open source software digital platform Yushahidi to allow Russian um, grassroots activists to map the fires that uh, took place in Russia a couple of years ago when they felt that the state was not doing enough or was doing nothing at all. And I, I profile a picture because the fellow in the center there, I wish I had a pointer, the fellow with the glasses, is a good illustration of how so much of these developments the imaginary about the internet age is about practice, about grassroots mobilization, but it's also about scholarship. The fellow in the middle with the glasses is now one of our PhD students here in our department, so um, <laughs> I tell all the students here that you can be both a practitioner and an um, academic at the same time. Um, but the question that motivated me to write this book was really about who is setting the norms and conventions for the way we interact in the, in the mediated world. Whose norms count the most now, but also very importantly in the future? Um, just to illustrate the clash of norms that so often takes place in the internet age, in the top you can see a percentage which I think says 65% of music is said to be illegally downloaded. I bet you there's very few people in this audience who haven't illegally downloaded some music files. But I won't ask you to show your hands. At the bottom is a listing from a fairly reputable consultancy company, CDC, of the estimates of piracy of um, software 
digital content. Whose norms will prevail, the ones on the left or the lowest piracy rates, the ones on the right? Whose norms should prevail? What are the implications for the way that we imagine the production of new innovative software applications, content, etc.? Who decides? Online sharing and digital pi uh, piracy is a huge topic in the policy arena. On the one hand, you have the British government, just to take an example, passing legislation which would make all people who illegally uh, download uh, content of any kind that is copyrighted into criminals, effectively. On the left, you have some images of those who resist this notion. People who think that because user-generated content is possible, that it should not be subject to enforced copyright, and it should be shareable. And quite often, the debate is presented as one between a Goliath, a David and a Goliath, battle of copyright. Quite often it is seen as one between the copyright industry, the big giants, the movie production houses, etc., and us, as small individual citizens. But it's not so, so easy as that, because it is the BTs and the Talk Talks of the world, the internet service providers, who are the ones who are really battling with the copyright industry. And the ISPs are not doing it for us as citizens, they're doing it because they're worried about their own commercial viability in the marketplace if everyone um, is disenfranchised from using the internet. They want to build the traffic and content. And so they will fight for, on our side if we want to see copyright pushed back. But they uh, will only do so as long as it serves their commercial interests. So that's one area where it's not so straightforward as the big guys against the little guys much more complex than that. Another illustration of where we see a lot of the literature will ask questions about, and very legitimate questions, about how friends in Facebook are developing. What are the implications for young people, for the older generations? Is it a question of how many friends you have or the quality of your friends? There's enormous amounts of research going on on social media platforms. But there's not a lot of critical research going on about whether or not the commercial market valuations of these platforms are the real drivers of what it is that you're able to access in the first place. So I've just shown Facebook and Google where their current positioning in the marketplace and the way they set the norms for your privacy, the way they set the norms for what content you can upload into the, um, their sites, which you do in most cases freely, the way their algorithms work, are at least to some extent a reflection of the norms and values that they are assuming are good for us. So, I can ask the question about whether it's technology policy and economics which is really driving the future development of the internet and the applications or it's social policy. What is the main driver and whose values really count? A good example, I think, is the case where um, some of the major proponents of the internet, Vint Cerf, sometimes called the father of the internet, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, sometimes called, the, well, he is the co-inventor of the World Wide Web, have championed open government, 
open data, transparency for government, democracy, as something which follows naturally, if you like, from the further development of the internet. And many governments, including the British government, have said this is a good idea. They have championed an open network, no restrictions in the internet, in the interests of democracy. But once again, it's not quite so easy, because at the very same time that they are championing open government, open data, etc., we are seeing conflicts. Again, they don't take a right or a left perspective. On the left is David Davis, who is a member of the Conservative Party in the UK. On the right is um, David Cameron, also leader of the Conservative Party. David Cameron wants to pass a new draft communications bill, which would enable the UK government, without your permission, to monitor whatever data traffic it wants. In the interest of securing your safety, so they claim, on the other hand, David Davis says this would be an infringement of your human rights if you are monitored and surveilled. There are protest movements. There are people who say that monitoring and surveillance should be dealt with by using various um, boxes that you tick built into the software to empower you to set your own privacy settings, etc. The question here is, how does this fit together with the notion of all that democratic, open data, open government, while at the same time, these developments are about anything but open data. And many of you might say that if you're surveilled without your permissions, it's hardly democratic. So there's a real set of conflicting norms and values. So what future? What hopes and fears? Is it all up for grabs? Should we sit back and wait to see what the next generation of internet developments brings us? Or should we try to think seriously about how these enduring conflicts come to light? Should we sit back and just assume that if the internet continues to develop along the lines that it is, with the use of all sorts of algorithms to monitor our behavior faster and faster in data processing, all processing, all going on at a rate which many of you, without being sophisticated programmers, could not possibly be able to understand. Will we become alone <coughs> together? Sherry Turkle's most recent assessment of the kinds of norms and values which are being embedded in the internet. Or will we become so overconnected? To use William Davidow's um, title of one of his books most recently. Will we simply adapt to the predominant norms and values in the internet age or perish? Will we have any choice at all? So in thinking about all of these conflicts, the conflict between safety and security and privacy and the conflict between the economic interests of those who see information as commercially valuable and want to protect it and those who see it as basically a free good that should be shared in the interests of all, is really a dominant set of views which have come to define the norms and values which are not only in the literature, but if you go talking to policymakers, you hear something like this. Digital innovation leads to greater mastery of our environment. We should keep on going. Progressive information. As that happens, choice is maximized. 
more and more diverse content becomes available. And the reason why this happens is because copyright enforcement gives reasons for people to produce more content. And at the same time, we should not regulate the internet because it should be the free market which allows this development to happen. And even if we did regulate the internet, it would be contrary to people's human rights. Alternatives coming from the bankers of the world, quite often, dare I say it, Manuel Castells and several others, are similar story. Digital in innovation will lead to mastery of our individual or collective environment. Choices maximized, but it happens because we share information. And the best uh, policy would be to loosen copyright restrictions. But also, we should not regulate the internet. The libertarian kinds of values should be paramount. And if we did, it would infringe on human rights and values. So, actually, with one exception of copyright, the two imaginaries about how the internet is developing look very really similar. So I said to myself, wait a minute, <coughs> why are they so similar? Why is the conflict happening except over copyright? And the reason is, is because both groups, the social movement activists, the open sharers, and the commercial industry, think that they're on the trajectory towards a good society, a more just society, as some would have it, a society which is actually responsive to the lives that people can actually lead. Both see a win for one side as being a loss for the other. In other words, there's no real way out of the conflict. And yet, both argue that we have the accountability structures in place to ensure that there is accountability for the choice of the norms and values which govern us in the internet age. It seems to me that this says that what we need is improved accountability structures at all levels, local and global, because it seems to me that if we leave the outcomes of the kinds of developments and conflicts that I've been talking about to the innovation process in an internet environment, <coughs> we're leaving it to unaccountable groups. The state is largely unaccountable. The big corporations are largely unaccountable. It's very easy to criticize them. I would argue that so too are many of the social movement groups are also unaccountable in the sense that they are the ones, many of them, who are developing these automated systems that allow the surveillance which is happening. And so there isn't a group who escapes. We need to take seriously, in terms of norms and values, all of these groups. Because if we don't, it means adapting to an internet age, regardless of whether it's benign or otherwise. I think what we need are new forms of top-down and bottom-up governance, not necessarily regulation in the conventional sense. Why do I think this? I think it because automation, the kinds of automation that go on, not in the experience of you every single minute of every single day, but behind the scenes, so to speak, um, are cumulative. I started with the 1930s when information processing control became the imaginary. 
this hasn't stopped. This is becoming a stronger and stronger ethos. Automation is becoming a part of everyday life. Could be to use the internet to map the environment for all sorts of purposes which are good. But as we have hinted at, there are purposes for which few of you would say, these are norms and values which I would like to see unfolding in the future. So many people would simply talk about policy measures and say, well, we need to roll back expansionist <laughs> copyright legislation. And I don't disagree with that. But I think that even if we were to do that, we would still face these enduring conflicts over the norms and values and the accountability of those who are making decisions. We could also resist the surveillance of citizens, both online and offline, and I'm sure some of you would, depending on how you feel about um, safety and security in the 21st century. But still, having done that, we will still face enduring conflicts between those who are setting the norms and values before the internet age as we go forward. Both sides will be claiming that they're doing so in line with democratic principles. I would simply ask you to challenge that idea and to take seriously the fact that there are many, many developments going on which are not part of the public policy discourse at the moment. They're just not simply hardly ever in it. So I would challenge you to think seriously about how to improve accountability in the internet age and to think about how governance arrangements might be created that are more effective than the ones we have today. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Actually, I had one more slide. What kind of internet are you imagining now? <laughs> Bill, do come and. Uh, yeah. Fantastic, Robin. Thank you very much. Um, Robin was giving me a look because she knows that I sometimes call for regulation in the interests of uh, child protection. So uh, I'm thinking too about uh, how to improve accountability and meet her challenge. But uh, I'm glad that uh, others are going to give the answers rather than I. So. Thank you, Sonia, for in inviting me. It's an honor to be here. And um, Robin, thank you for your presentation. And, and also, I want to first of all congratulate you and Oxford University Press on, on this book. It's absolutely great. It's a, um, uh, what I want to do, I've, I've been asked to be brief, and I will, uh, but uh, that means I'm going to have to skate over a few things. But I want to put this in sort of the perspective I read the book. And uh, help you understand why I think it's an important book. Um, primarily, I think you can see in the last few slides, I think the importance of the book is it, it refocuses attention on policy issues. Um, that may seem uh, uh, no big deal, but it, I think it actually is. The, uh, most of the research on the Internet uh, over time uh, was originally focused primarily on the technology, so the technology and technology innovation. Uh, relatively little focus on, on, on uh, policy, although policy was, of course, hugely important in the whole birth of, of networking and so forth as, uh, through um, uh, non-regulation of, of, uh, of value-added services and so forth. Uh, then, most as the Internet became... Uh, 
useful in a variety of contexts, most of the attention focused on patterns of use. So we uh, a great deal of research on how people use the Internet in a variety of social contexts, uh, the household, commerce, uh, digital government, others. Uh, how do people use it, with what effect, and uh, what institutional consequences are governments more or less produ- uh, uh, re- uh, responsive to citizens and so forth. But only now, I think, uh, governance and policy are rising on the, as, a, as a more important focus. Uh, because now, I mean, for a long time, policy was uh, light, and uh, uh, people felt that the Internet was a cool innovation, maybe something that might die on its own, uh, something like CB radio or whatever, it'll go away. Uh, and now people realize, uh, not at all. This is absolutely becoming a centerpiece of everyday life and work. Um, it is uh, implicated in major developments around the world, and that uh, this is too important for policymakers to leave alone. And uh, uh, so there, there's a whole reconsideration of, of how policy will deal with the Internet and related information and communication technologies. And therefore, I think this book is extremely timely. I mean, it's absolutely at the right time because it gives you sort of a framework for thinking about policy related to the Internet. And it also provides some directions, um, uh, identifying goals. I, I, Robin identified several, and you could remember them from her slides, but trying to break the monopolies of knowledge as one of the phrases she uses. Of course, uh, we, would, we would hope that, that no... Um, uh, company has so so much of a monopoly on search or social networking or whatever that we have uh, no potential accountability. Fostering creativity like sharing and of course uh, that is a goal many of us have in trying to undo digital divides and what she calls augmenting the human mind which actually talks about uh, some uh, ability, some initiatives uh, uh, that uh, deal with uh, intelligent systems and so forth, which also in, in, involve increased surveillance capabilities and so forth. So these are all things that I think are useful goals. And so she not only focuses on policy, but gives us some directionality uh, to do that. I think it's interesting. In the good society, the problem is we, uh, many of us may share our views of what a good society would look like, and but we differ on how to get there, and we don't know. We debate over the, you know, what, what we need to do in order to achieve the goals. And even if we agree on the goals uh, and we agree on a mechanism, uh, much policy in the communications arena often has unintended consequences that are totally antithetical to what we tried to do. So these are contentious areas, not simply because we can't agree on the goals, but because we... Uh, we need, to, we need to examine what the, the actual consequences are. Um, I think that there's, uh, I, first of all, I want to I, I try to both uh, be complimentary, but I also want to help, you're, you've asked me to help kick off debate, and I think uh, there is a tendency for people to think there's, uh, there's a, you know, the evil market versus the, the positive policy and governance uh, dimensions and uh, there's no I have no rosy view of policy whatsoever uh, I have uh, I actually think and I'm not just because I'm pro market I think that there's all sorts of 
um, policy is embedded in everything. It's inherent. There is nothing that is not policy-oriented. The First Amendment is a basic element of public policy. Uh, so public policy can be open or closed and so forth. So we need to take issue with the nature of public policy. And we're all uh, inevitably dealing with policy. So I think a realistic perspective is that, um, is well, for example, I, I mean, the, uh, you mentioned the Digital Economy Act, and I think you know the Digital Economy Act is basically policy that actually supports old business models. So it, it is supportive of the market, and, and it's uh, a market-driven sort of uh, aims and objectives. So policy is inevitable. We have to deal with it, and we need to get it right. If we do not get policy right, we'll have uh, actually uh, negative social consequences. We lose some of the, the, um, what we imagine as, as the, the good outcomes of the Internet. I am not a... Um, you can nudge me if I'm going over time. The, uh, I am not a, a, a rosy picture of a, the new information society. I don't think you need to have a complete social transformation to have uh, uh, spurred by the Internet and new media. But I am very positive about the impact of the Internet on empowering networked individuals. Um, I argue in the, uh, this notion of the fifth estate that Sonia mentioned that the Internet is enabling networked individuals to source their own information and to decide what networks they uh, associate with. And that by, by being able to join networks online and to be able to source their own information, they have an independent ability to hold other institutions accountable, whether it's in uh, health and medicine or whether it's in uh, government and democracy. Incrementally, that enables a more pluralistic liberal democratic society. Uh, that's why I call them the fifth estate because I think that they're actually comparable to the press of an earlier era in the sense that the press, when, in, when it had an independent role in relatively liberal democratic societies, uh, the press could hold other institutions more accountable. And it, that kind of greater pluralistic accountability is an important incremental step towards... Uh, and I, I really like your focus on accountability. I think that that is so, so important. We're not going to talk about the th fourth estate and the Levinson inquiry, but unless people ask. <laughs> but, but clearly that is an issue too, which will they watch this space to see what happens with the Levinson inquiry and whether we're going to worry about the fourth estate. But, uh, but I'm worried about the fifth estate, and I think many of Robin's examples give us reason to worry about whether the empowered networked individual will be undermined by uh, pr prevailing policy. And I'll just briefly touch on some of the examples you, you raised, uh, Robin, like privacy and online sharing. Uh, uh, yeah, the Digital Economy Act is, is, uh, does put in mechanisms to find out who's sharing, uh, uh, illegally sharing uh, copyrighted music. Uh, this is uh, also mirrored in the SOPA Act in the U.S., and there have been a number of initiatives aimed at uh, trying to stop uh, illegal file sharing. And even though it is um, likely to be very responsibly implemented in, in the U.K. and elsewhere, if it, if it is, um, it nevertheless puts the, uh, the intermediaries, ISPs, in the business of tracking what users do 
and uh, government in the business of using intermediaries to track what users do. And I think that, that it, inevitably all of those, those, uh, those mechanisms have the potential for a real chilling effect on the, uh, the role of the Internet as an as a, uh, uh, empowering technology. Also, in terms of security and um, this, uh, the data communications bill, I agree that this is a serious concern as well um, because, again, it places uh, uh, the Internet service providers as intermediaries in the role of uh, retaining data about what people do online, where they go online, where they search, what, who they email, so forth, and retaining that for extended periods of time. It's opposed by a lot of people. It's, uh, uh, it's very similar to, the, uh, to Canada's um, Protecting Children from Online Predators Act, which was uh, uh, very similar in the, in the sense that you know, we have to protect children from predators and therefore we have to watch what everybody does online and so forth. And you're either with us or the predators. And most Canadians said we're with the predators. <laughs> and uh, they've killed the uh, the C30 bill uh, because it was uh, was so it could have had such a chilling effect on uh, on online use. And again, you mentioned that social media, and clearly there is concern over yeah following where you are and uh, uh, your location or uh, who your friends privacy. Did, I think that in many respects, the internet uh, and social media firms are getting it, getting their act together. Uh, there is enough competition, and, and uh, Google Plus and Facebook and so forth are, uh, have have really moved very fast in revising their policies on um, uh, be, enabling people to determine uh, the privacy settings of their data and so forth. And uh, so there is really movement in the marketplace to support that. And, um, and clearly, the Internet is an experience technology. I find this all the time. And also, social media are experience technologies. The people who use these media are not as worried about it as the people who never use them. Okay? Uh, and I want my location tracked because I want to find my daughter every once in a while and find out where she is, and we agree, and we both accept it, and yeah, okay, I know where you are. And um, it has services I like, and I would, uh, but again, the problem becomes when, the com- problem comes when you lose control over who, who has access to that data. So I think there are threats to the Internet and its ability to empower individuals, and therefore the fifth estate. I don't think it's a matter of, policy or marketplace forces, I think it's a problem of inappropriate policy. And I think if to put it as simply as possible, I think that around the world, uh, too many governments are taking a simple view of of intermediaries like ISPs and, and search companies as broadcasters, okay? They have no paradigm by which to regulate the Internet. And so... One simplistic paradigm is that we will ask them to, to watch. They will be like the broadcaster in controlling what people watch and, what, and, and, and blocking content, ensuring that all the content is safe for children and everyone else. Uh, 
But that is just an inappropriate model. It does not fit the Internet, and, uh, and I think we have to keep at the fact of, of trying to... Uh, this is a, a, the key challenge for academia, I think, is to bring in appropriate models for regulating the Internet and new media that are not so simplistic as thinking of this as a broadcasting model where you can finger uh, intermediaries to, to play the role of broadcasters in this new media environment. It will not work with, what, 60 hours of video uploaded every minute. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely impossible. So anyway, that's why there's got to be a priority on public policy and regulation, and that's why this book is important and timely, uh, because that's exactly what we should be uh, debating and talking about right now. So congratulations, Robin, on this. Thank you. Wow, our challenges are mounting up here. Now we have to bring in the new regulatory models and uh, figure out how to improve public policy. Um, Robert, I don't know if you're going to do that or something else, but uh, the floor is yours. Thank you. Now for, now for something completely different. Um, I'm, I am an outsider to the field of Internet uh, studies. Um, I'm going to start with the um, opposition between the two imaginaries that Robin set out. In fact, I'm so much of an outsider that I don't even like the word imaginaries. Um, I would prefer to use uh, image or vision, except on the word vision, I hesitate because I remember Helmut Schmidt's dismissive remark, people who have visions should see a doctor. <laughs> but in any case, Robin sets out these two imaginaries um, uh, and shows them to be um, that the proponents of each regard um, them as mutually exclusive. And so she talks of um, circular debates that go round and round and round between the champions of each. And what struck me reading the book was how much these have in common, which is wrong, at least probably wrong, and I'm going to talk about some of these things, um, which point, uh, for me, some of these things that I think they get wrong, point to me to some of the downsides of the Internet, that the Internet champions tend to kind of go light on or overlook. But um, actually, I want to begin with just a, a question which comes out of an interest in uh, economic growth. Um, both of the imaginaries presume... They presume that the um, ICT revolution, which started in the 1960s, um, is still unfolding and will go on unfolding and generating a great impetus to further economic growth. They point to things like big improvements in flash memory, in sensors, in software algorithms, which can handle huge data sets and... Um, the combination of these three things, the um, flash memory, the sensors, and these new algorithms, uh, greatly improve the ability of machines to learn and therefore, the presumption is, uh, assist human decision-making. And the uh, case, uh, recent case in point is uh, the ability of IBM's supercomputer named Watson, 
after the founder of IBM, to beat human contestants in the game of Jeopardy. And so you find that um, if you look at fields like artificial intelligence, robotics, data analysis, forecasting, marketing, these fields are buzzing with the prospect of the application of these innovations. Um, And not just these fields, also going sideways into automobiles, the prospect of the driverless car comes um, into view. Um, In the military field, uh, military uh, battlefield drones uh, becoming super efficient and replacing human beings on the battlefield and so on. Much excitement. Also, new internet platforms uh, leading to... um, the phenomenal growth of e-commerce. Um, the estimate is that e-commerce presently accounts for only 6% of U.S. retail sales, but this is expected to go to 20% by the end of this decade and by 50% by the end of the next decade. And this is all said to be great in terms of the good society, which is defined as the society which maximizes the scope for individual choice, which is called empowering Individuals. I'm very suspicious. Um, other, the, uh, I, I presented the view of the champions of this of ICTs who forecast a continual rollout of these new internet-based technologies, and therefore future economic growth coming on the back of this rollout. But other analysts who come from outside the ICT field. Um, consider that the productivity gains from ICTs were mostly played out by the mid to the late 1990s, and they point to the fact that today investors, like companies with lots of cash, are not clustering on particular ICT innovations, um, and that uh, they're they're kind of scattered all over the place. Um, There is no one new best thing that is on the horizon. Um, Robert Gordon, you may have um, seen Martin Wolf um, writing about Robert Gordon's paper um, in the Financial Times a few days ago. Robert Gordon, who's an expert in productivity, um, points to uh, big obstacles to continued productivity growth in the US and in Europe, the things like the end of the democratic, uh, demographic dividend, the end of the baby boomers, that includes me, Um, and uh, the end of women coming into the labor force, uh, the leveling out of educational attainment, um, high public and private debts, all these things together, according to Gordon, are constraining the growth of demand, and this will constrain the growth of the rollout of new ICT um, innovations. Well, these are two rather different scenarios of the future of ICTs, and I don't know how to um, uh, reconcile these scenarios, but I think that there is an interesting debate to have. But my impression, reading Robin's book, is that the champions on both sides of these imaginaries really don't even address the question. Another thing that they both share is that they tend to ignore... Um, the unequalizing effects of ICT innovations, unequalizing both vertically, that's spatially, sorry, horizontally, that's spatially, and also vertically. And I want to say a little bit more about this. We have been reading uh, in the media 
all about the hollowing out of the middle class. It's coming very strongly from the Obama campaign, which is focusing on um, the hollowing out of the middle class as the big problem of public policy. Uh, an, Obama an Obama advisor said recently that um, uh, economic growth has to begin in the middle class and radiate outwards. And you're hearing lots of stuff from the top of British politics about the big problem of the middle class and how public policy should support middle class households. And I keep asking myself, well, what's below the middle? What's happening to people below the middle? If it's middle, there must be something, somebody below the middle. Um, and what is happening... Um, is this. Uh, I did have a chart, but I, in my haste to get here, I left my memory stick in my office. So I'll just describe what has been happening. This is with reference to the United States, and it concerns trends in the income share, the share of national income by different deciles in the U.S. population. So in the U.S. population, um, the shares of the top 10%, uh, the middle 50%, that's deciles 5 to 9, and the shares of the bottom 40%, that's deciles 1 to 4, from 1947 to around about 1980 were roughly constant, roughly constant all through that period. Um, then after 1980, with globalization, with the coming on of the Internet, with Reaganomics, with Thatchernomics, um, the share of the top 10% began to zoom up and their share increased by 10 percentage points so that uh, by 2007 or so. Um, meanwhile, the share of the middle 50% went down by something like 5 percentage points from about 57 to about 52% um, of national income. Um, so their share went down. In that sense, the middle class was being squeezed through the 19. Uh, 80s and 90s in, and into the 2000s. But also, the, sh the share of the bottom 40% was being squeezed proportionately even more. In fact, a large part of the gain of the top 10% came at the expense of the bottom 40%. And all, all this talk of the hollowing out of the middle class seems to me peculiar because it simply writes off, it simply ignores what is happening to the bottom 40%. They are being squeezed even more as the share of the top 10% and especially the top share of the 1% goes up and up and up. Um, and uh, there is, of course, another break point in the income distribution below the top 1%, which is at the level of those who have tertiary education and those who have high school education. And it's those who have high school education and who are not particularly uh, connected to the Internet. They are the ones who are being really squeezed um, in terms of losing their share of national um, income. Um, so that's one thing that they, uh, these two imaginaries share, it seems to me. They, have, they give rather little attention to the unequalizing effects in a vertical dimension, but also in um, what you could call a horizontal or a spatial dimension. And here I'm referring to, in particular, the growth of e-commerce and the growth of retail parks outside of 
towns. One of the really big impacts of the Internet has been on lowering the costs of transport and of warehousing, and that in turn has fueled the growth of e-commerce and retail parks. And the champions of the Internet celebrate this both e-commerce and retail parks as expanding the scope for individual choice. But, of course, what they're doing is to ignore the externalities of individual choice, such as the collapse of local supply chains, such as the way that the big chains use monopoly power to put greater and greater pressure on their um, producers, and such as the collapse of high streets. Um, John Harris had an article in The Guardian just yesterday about the collapse of the British high street, in which he said that in the case of Nottingham Town Centre, the uh, percentage of vacant shops in January of this year, January 2012, was 25%. 25% of shops in the Nottingham Town Centre were vacant. By June, only six months later, that percentage had gone from 25% to 31%. So a collapse of the Nottingham Town Centre, and this is being replicated, though not on that scale, right across um, the country. And as John Harris says, the belief that the British High Street is doomed, that is, in, it is inevitably doomed because of the rise of e-commerce and retail parks outside of towns, is, quote, one of the most alarming beliefs of our time. And he proposes that we immediately set up a society for the preservation of urban, urban England. Um, and then, and then uh, finally, there's the employment effects of e-commerce and uh, also, to some extent, retail parks. Um, the champions say, again, that e-commerce, um, yes, it wipes out retail jobs, but replaces retail jobs with uh, better-paying, high-technology jobs. Research from the Center for Economic Performance here at LSE shows that this is really quite implausible. Uh, the retail jobs that, are, that vanish as e-commerce rises are not replaced by better-paying technology jobs on the whole. They're replaced by other jobs that may be even less skilled. And just finally, um, one of the things that they share, the two imaginaries share, has to do with the role of the state. There's a very clear presumption on both sides that the state should have no role in directing the evolution of the communication system. And I, again, I think that this is just wildly um, unrealistic. Um, historically, these technologies have come on stream uh, in large part because of public funding, public research and development. The Internet is one example, but there are many more. Um, today uh, in the United States, uh, many agencies, public agencies, are steering the direction of Internet technologies, ICT technologies more broadly, in domains of interest to them. The, the CIA, for example, has a venture capital fund which it is using to uh, get private firms to innovate in ICTs in areas of direct interest to the CIA. And in general, um, what we're seeing right now is that investors, companies with cash to invest, are pulling back from high-risk, high-reward investments towards the origin, that is, towards low-risk, low-return investments. Um, and 
if that's the case, if they're becoming much more cautious, and if this is going to continue for another decade, as seems to me quite possible, then it just underlines the important role of public agencies in providing public funding for um, innovating in uh, the kind of areas that we've been talking about um, in ways that will then allow private firms to come in and face uh, lower risk investment opportunities in the wake of the breakthroughs made by public agencies and public funding. In any case, as I said, now for something completely different. I haven't talked about all the accountability and the privacy issues that the others have talked about, but we can open it up now. Thank you. But you did come back to the question of public policy and the state. So there are, um, I think, many connections between uh, the points that have been raised and um, many uh, big questions for the future of the Internet and, indeed, the future of um, society. So um, the floor is now open. Um, and um, I'm half tempted to ask Robin to respond, but I know that she would like to hear from you. Uh, so uh, do please ask questions, and if you can be uh, succinct and start out by saying who you are. Uh, there are people with roving mics. Um, so. Okay, yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Louis Bogol, a master's student in operational research. And my question is, what impact do you think the network structure of the Internet has on the dangers of cognitive hacking? which is the understanding of the intricacies of someone's decision process as a means to influence that decision maker. What did you say? Cognitive packing? Uh, cognitive hacking. It's oh, hacking. Uh, quite a big worry of DARPA right now, which, uh, interestingly, was the inventor of the Internet or the ARPANET. Mm-hmm. Okay. Robin, do you want to answer as we go? Or? I can say something if you want. Yeah. Um, right, while others are just thinking, yes. I have to admit that cognitive hacking is not a term that I am hugely familiar with, but I think what you might be suggesting um, is to do with the growing concern about the way in which um, we were able to algorithmically um, monitor, predict, and make suppositions about potential human behavior, or attitudes at least, if not behavior. And that this is something which is something the UK government is investing hugely in, and also so is the US. And indeed, um, it seems to me that there's a belief, very much as the early information processing belief, the more sophisticated our algorithms, the more it is we'll be able to do that more effectively. But I raise the question, and it's a multi-leveled question in the sense that one might support or not support the investment and R&D in, the, in that kind of development. But that doesn't mean that you necessarily support what it might be applied for. And I suppose the analogy is you can support research and development in almost anything. Years ago, it was the atomic bomb. <laughs> Nobody thought that it was going to have the consequences it had. So what I am trying to raise is people's awareness of the real consequences for human beings in the way they experience their lives. At the same time as we ask questions about the immediacy of investment trajectories. And that would apply as much to what Robert was saying about whether or not we support e-commerce of this kind or that kind. We may well in one local sense. But I'm asking the bigger question about what are the norms and values which really should inflect 
should in the sense of what I would wish or collectively we might reach a consensus about, which govern whether or not DARPA should be allowed to come along and actually implement these systems, and whether or not they do it transparently or not. There was a question there, I think. Oh, and... Okay. All right, so two in the center here. Yeah. Oh, Hi, I'm okay. Giles Bailey. I'm a business consultant. Uh, now, how realistic do you think the role of government can really be in regulating, regulating the Internet I mean, due to its transitory and transnational nature, particularly versus behavior and the fact that, you know, ultimately people will make data available or not, or just the commercial power of businesses like Facebook and Google and, and so on? I mean, really, do they really have the ability to almost steer the ship, or is this something that's really out of their control? Can you pass it to the gentleman behind you? And I'm out to, and, and then again, one more behind. To, and then I'm going to ask, see if how many want to respond here. Thank you. Um, Mark Anthologov, I work in um, IT and governance and assurance as it happens. Um, rather than ask a question, if you, if you don't mind, make, if I can make a couple of brief observations and ask you to respond, because the, the subject area you're covering is very broad and, in a sense, you're all right, but in some areas perhaps you're all wrong as well. So I, I think the. One of the issues is around the complexity, and one of the responses that we typically see to complexity is that people try and control this and box it up, but I'd suggest that it's too late to box a lot of things up. So if we're going to look at um, ways to move forward, then we need new models of engagement. We need to change the old thinking, which is sort of command and control, and develop some new approaches, and we need to enable perhaps more personal responsibility and to address some of the issues around privacy and such like, look at ways of not only enabling personal responsibility, but look at mechanisms for redress rather than control and limitation. So uh, just a couple of thoughts, perhaps to invite some response. Um, Jonathan, you... Oh, okay, all right. Um, Should we take another couple now and then... Okay, yeah. Um. Hi, I'm uh, Chris, I'm a Luddite. Uh, I was uh, wondering about your uh, opinion on the international nature of the internet and how that made it so much harder for policymakers to make <coughs> policy and whether you saw any obvious solutions to that problem. Okay, we'll just take Mike there, yeah, and then... See who wants to respond. Right. Uh, Mike Cushman, I do lots of things here, including researching digital exclusion. Um, what I'm interested in is, if we're talking about what we imagine, it's how we imagine a digitalized polity, which is much wider than the questions that Robin got us to, which are important about IPR and about surveillance in the digital age. We have to imagine how we see democratic process is both expanded and undermined by digital communication. There are both opportunities and threats here. And how we imagine a digitalized social life, how face-to-face communities are the same as and different from digitalized communities, and how each of them support or don't support collective action by the 40% or wider that Robert was talking about against those people who contain much more power within current society. 
privilege certain groups. And I would argue that the certain groups who are not privileged most of the time are that bottom 40% uh, that we should be concerned about. And so, in a way, I'm not asking should we regulate or not the internet. That's where the debate is stuck, I am arguing. If we move away from those parameters of the debate, we enter into a space which has some more problematic answers, which brings me to the question that was asked about complexity. Um, I didn't talk about what I see as a paradox of complexity in the involving system, but it's a very core theme in the book. I didn't talk about it because um, <coughs> it often gets me into trouble with <laughs> people who know a lot more about systems theory and complexity theory than I do. But the essential point that I think you are making is that unlike a rather simplistic past, which we could argue about, where linear notions about uh, command and control, information processing, control and mastery and environment were predominant, we have moved some way in terms of the zeitgeist of how systems operate into an environment where indeterminacy and complexity are recognized. I would argue they've always been there. But that idea is coming to the fore more and more. And one of the responses to that idea, that we live in a complex, global, mediated environment, is again, let's do nothing. Because if we intervene through regulation or policy or whatever you want to call it, the system is so indeterminate that we will have unexpected outcomes. Yes, we will. We will have outcomes which are driven by top-down states and therefore cannot be in the interests of citizens and populations. And so therefore, whether you're a libertarian who believes in an unregulated internet or you are a um, top-down authoritarian state, you're being told constantly by the developers and the designers of the very system that we are coming to take for granted that if we just let it unfold, the chances are that it'll be all right on the night. The chances are. And that if you have less than full empirical knowledge about all of the permutations and consequences of your intervention, it is safer to do nothing. That is a cover story for a lot of the biases and the values and norms which are being embedded into the very system that we're talking about. All I'm trying to do is, let's stop talking about a fantasy world. Let's start talking and probing and getting to what is actually in the minds of developers and have an argument. We may disagree. Just on the digitized polity um, and the process of, uh, processes of collective action, etc., and not pushing all this back onto individuals you know, to look after themselves and make choices. I fully support the notion of um, a collective action. I can see and try to give you examples of where some of that, whether through crowdsourcing or whatever, is enabling for groups who are mobilized <coughs> through all sorts of possibilities that are available online which were not there in the past. What I worry about, though, is the fact that there's too much of an assumption that somehow all of that collective action is supportive of democratic values and values that we would wish to encourage. Gone the, what happened to the days when, um, for example, in the media communication field, it was once the case that people talked about uh, media activism and alternative media as if it was always good. It was always championing the good society. And then people like John Downey came along and said, oh, okay, wait a minute. Alternative media, it can be 
championing values which he at least and I certainly wouldn't feel very comfortable with. In fact, anti-democratic. What I'm targeting is the assumption that online mobilization is on balance a good thing. It should necessarily flower without question because it somehow is taken to be, I mean, much of the literature, although not all of the literature, synonymous with democratic processes which we would value. And what I'm saying is, wait a minute, this may be true in front of the screen in terms of the debates you can see, but what is going on in a way behind the screens in the algorithmic world, in the world of um, cognitive hacking, whatever this guy called, called it, stuff that hardly ever is talked about in polite company. It just simply isn't, either because it's military secrets or because it's so sensitive that people, if they did talk about it, might be fearful, even more fearful for their security in everyday life than they are now. So I think, just to come to the end of what's becoming too long an answer, um, I like to think of it this way. Much of what we talk about in the policy domains, whether internationally or in the offcoms or wherever of the world, is the tactics, to use DeSerto's term. <coughs> it's about tactics. It's real, it's important, it matters. Legislation can be fought or not fought. You can agree with what's going on in the high street as the result of electronic commerce or whatever or not, but it's sort of at a tactical level. There's another level which is strategic. And what I think I'm trying to draw attention to is that too much of the debate in the internet age, if you like, is about the tactics. It's about, should we do this or should we do that? And what will happen as a consequence? We'll measure it. What I'm trying to do is say that debate needs to be connected to a much larger debate about the environment in which we live, the mediated world in which we live, and where we might find ourselves several decades from now and who might be benefiting in that world. And I would argue my own view is, although I don't necessarily have all the empirical evidence to support it, but my hunch is that we need to do more research on what that trajectory looks like because it isn't all about the internet. It is all about human beings and the next generation of people. Just um, about to say. Um, no, 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 sorry. Um, so, uh, I think we have time for a few more questions, and there were some hands um, up earlier. And, um, okay, Lynn in the front, yeah. Thank you. And, um, okay, one and then, up there. Up there. That oh, yes, good. And then one back there. I'm Lynn Schofield-Clark from University of Denver, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and hear from you. Um, and one of the things, um, I teach journalism at the University of Denver, and so one of the things that occurs to me in terms of the, this issue of tactics and strategies is how do we fit journalism in relation to these policy issues? Because when we think about the aspects of what the Internet has done to journalism as an industry, um, and the rise of lots of different kinds of opportunities for alternative media, ways for people to connect. That can be really exciting. But on the other hand, if we think about um, journalism as a way in which information can be shared and public frameworks can be created, um, is there a role for policy in relation to um, the Internet and, uh, and journalism? And I think particularly in relation to maybe how Google benefits um, 
perhaps even uh, you know in, in certain ways because they're able to aggregate and, and release journalistic information. And that seems to be one of those things that is not on the table in U.S. policy discussions. But I'm wondering if that's something that you would have some insight. Thank you. I'm going to take the lady at the back there and the gentleman up there, and then that might be it. Oh, well, maybe one more very brief here, and then I want to give the panel a chance to have a last word. So, Thank you. please. Could you speak into the mic? Yeah, sees the significance of her book for societies where perhaps access to knowledge and information, access to literacy are perhaps more important than issues of privacy, copyright, and the value that she has been emphasizing, which might be more topical for Western societies. Are you thinking of a particular part of the world, particular country? Yes, I Okay, thank you. Um, my name's Campbell Cowie. I'm uh, Ofcom's Director of Internet Policy. Um, oh. And I am, uh, <laughs> for the for, uh, part, last part of my day job, is, um, is actually implementing the Digital Economy Act. And um, I am co-author of the, uh, the report that Robin um, had on a slide and um, a co-author also of a report on, uh, on website blocking. And there was a number of, uh, of comments that I heard about the Digital Economy Act that I just wanted to, 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 to push back on, which is um, it's actually a lot more complicated than I think has been presented here. Um, the idea that it's old versus new is not quite right. Um, a couple of the biggest supporters of, of what we are trying to do are Spotify, we serve in Netflix. I wouldn't consider them old business models. I would consider them very much new business models. Um, ISPs tracking the use of the consumers, no, they don't. That's not part of what the Digital Economy Act says. Um, in terms of um, impact on citizens, one of the things, uh, and sort of, you know, does it criminalise um, consumers? Actually, one of the interesting things that we got is we received quite a lot of feedback, in particular from the Citizens Advice Bureau, who actually reckoned that the Digital Economy Act provides greater protection for internet users than the pre-existing copyright, uh, the, the Copyright Design and Patents Act. Um, so actually, I, I think there's, there's again, a, a bit of a, a mythology has grown up around the Digital Economy Act. Um, the, the position of ISPs is an interesting one. Um, of course, many of the large ISPs are very um, significant owners of intellectual property rights themselves and often go to court to fiercely defend their own intellectual property rights. Um, so it, I think they're often positioned as, as sort of somehow being opponents to what the Digital Economy Act is trying to do. In many cases, they're not. They're very sympathetic. Um, what they're keen to avoid is a position where they are somehow found to be liable themselves for action. So whilst they may well be sympathetic to um, action being taken to protect copyright, they themselves are very keen on schemes that avoid them being liable. And I think the, the, the liability point is extremely important as you then look forward to whether it's dealing with child protection online or, or any other form of, of social policy concern. It's, the ISP's worry is if they accept liability on areas where they genuinely are sympathetic, what else is around the corner that they may well also be found to be liable to deal with? Um, I'm, I'm going to ask yeah. you to... And I think just I, I, one final point, which is just to thank Bill for saying that my implementation would be sensible. <laughs> the cheque is in the post. Okay, I'm going to ask this gentleman to be very brief if possible, and then we'll... Uh, ben Horse from the Intellectual Property Office. Hello, Campbell. Um, uh, actually, Campbell's said a, a couple of things that I was, I was going to cover, so I thought I'd just add something else. I mean, I think regulation is 
is often faced by challenges. I mean, we're all faced with uh, challenges of keeping up with change. But I think maybe there are particular challenges from exponential change, and that's, that's really at the heart of all this. So I wondered if, if any of the panel want to comment on how regulation should uh, deal with uh, regulating something that is so much a moving target. Fantastic. <laughs> You like the questions, Bill. Okay, I'm going to come to Robin last, I think. So, Robert, do you want to... Just a quick comment on the the question about journalism. Um, I certainly think that there is no future for quality journalism, as distinct from tabloid journalism, um, in the form of um, public companies uh, aiming at maximising profits. Uh, There is no future... um, Uh, The Guardian uh, has stood out because it is in the form of a trust and the publication of The Guardian is subsidized from other parts of the trust. If you have a cash cow, then that may be a viable model. But remember that The Guardian was the most read newspaper, The Guardian Online, in Britain and the third most last year and the third most read in the world. That may be the English-speaking world, but anyway, in either the whole world or the English-speaking world, and it lost £73 million last year. Um, So we have to find another form of corporate organisation for the the supply of um, quality journalism. And it seems to me one of the great big questions facing the society that is being actually very little addressed, to my knowledge. Uh, one of the greatest things somebody told me at Oxford once was uh, uh, I was worried about whether we're going too fast on something. And, and he said, Bill, uh, at Oxford, don't worry. You can never go too fast because we have all sorts of ways of slowing things down. <laughs> and I think, I think in, in the com- communication policy world and, and in the Internet as well, I would not worry about moving too quickly. Uh, a lot of things are slowing things down all the time, and uh, uh, but I but I think you know really these questions you haven't asked one easy question uh, at all. But uh, on the journalism issue, I think it is hugely important that we think about new business models that can support high quality mediated journalism. Uh, and I think right now, actually the. There is a really healthy, I think, ecology of social media, the Internet, and, and journalism uh, that, are, that are really supporting one another in a variety of ways. But in the longer term, uh, uh, a viable business model that will support uh, high-quality journalism is, is avoid, you know, it's, it's not clear what that is. And so that's another real challenge for academic research and, and thinking. And... Um, and I, you know, I really take the point about, you know, we really have skated over a lot of issues about the Digital Economy Act and other things. We, we're rushed, but, but, uh, and I, I uh, invite all of you to read in detail the uh, the communication, the communications bill, front to back, and also the Digital Economy Act, and uh, uh, and it, it's, it's very important that these policy issues are really looked at and debated very carefully. I would say, uh, uh, in response, uh, to thank you for. Uh, it's really great to see uh, people who are really in the business of, of working on these policies around today. Uh, I'm not worried about the ISPs. They are not. I mean, when I say we protect the internet, I'm not worried about the ISPs or the search engines. I'm worried about the user of the internet, and uh, what the uh, so. 
if the ISBs are on one side or another, I'm worried about whether they are, uh, what data they're collecting about users, uh, who gets access to that, um, and whether they are given, uh, you know, uh, uh, what legitimacy do they have of sharing that information with whom. And, uh, and I think we have to decide all those issues in terms of uh, the user and ability, uh, the feeling that an, a person using the Internet uh, can uh, go where they want, ask what they want, uh, and without any fear of, uh, of retribution. That is absolutely essential. And some level of anonymity, some level of, of, of lack of fear of attribution for a free, free society. But that, but that goes to the hacking and I, I, I'm sorry, I can't. Don't overestimate government intelligence services and everything else about being able to figure out what you're thinking. And, and then we're all in communications and media. We know we can't even, even if we know what somebody's thinking, we can't influence their decisions, right? But it's very difficult. Uh, but, you know, there's this famous, uh, you're going to tell me, I can't think of the author of this, the famous article, uh, Why My TiVo Thinks I'm Gay. This is uh, this is all about cognitive intelligence, which is you know we are not there yet. And people think that we can decide, figure out what you're thinking, what you know. Thank goodness we're not there yet. Uh, that's the most Orwellian future. But uh, so we're uh, going to have faith and incompetence. Okay, yes. that's that's the, the call yes. of the desperate, I think. But <laughs> Robin, I'm going to give you the last word, and there were quite a number of questions, so uh, let me be quick. I can't I'll possibly do wish, justice yeah. to all of them. Um, I did want to say to uh, the woman who asked about access to knowledge. Um, I think one of the myths about the internet is that it can permit you to access knowledge. What it can permit access to is information. If you do not couple that information with uh, a rich local capacity for integrating that with local knowledge, you might as well not have access. So I'm talking about the balance between the excitement about bringing networks and access to information into poor communities, local communities, wherever. I'm not going to say what that balance should be for you if you're from there. But I will say that all of the mo- most of the policy assumes that somehow everything on the ground locally will come right as long as you get access to this local pool of knowledge. And I would, I would really question that. Um, to the gentleman from Afghan, um, I guess I'd like to just say a couple of things. First of all, at the level of um, who is protecting whom with the new legislation, it, I, there's a new article uh, published, I remember the journal, but it's a 2012 article <coughs> by Walt Fogel, who is one of the people who writes extensively about copyright. And his empirical data begins to suggest, at least, that it's not the big, it is the big majors who are being hit by copyright infringement, and it is them who want to curtail it through various measures. But the independents, surprisingly enough, haven't taken a hit from this more open sharing culture and the abuse of, of copyright. And so I ask again, whose norms and values are, are we really trying to protect by these efforts to, in a way, go against the grain of an open sharing culture? I make that point. But my other point was, not, not so much to suggest that the DEA, for example, is somehow mandated to go out following people around all over the place. 
What it does do is it encourages investment in a certain type of technology which is embedded in the network by the ISPs. It encourages the development of some databases, whether locally decentralized or not, which is on a pathway, I would argue, in a direction which could very easily, without discussion, without debate, without full transparency about where that is going, couple with other developments that are happening for other reasons to bring about a kind of world which is not the one we have now, but is far more complex and sophisticated with regard to the role of these kinds of networks and applications, that it is not any more benign, but it is something that we should really worry about. So all I'm suggesting is With technological progress, it's always so easy to sit back and say, well, it must be progressive. Here we sit in the middle of the, at the beginning of the 21st century, worrying about global warming and all sorts of other things that have been partly brought about by technological progress. Why should we put the internet and the networks and all the software developments on one side and say, they're not going to affect progress and the world we live in in the future? I just think that's, it's, it's, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And yet, I see some people looking at me and saying, why is she saying this? Why isn't she talking about tomorrow and what we should do in terms of the implementation plan for the DEA? I think that is a legitimate concern, but I'm trying to open up the debate so that we do think seriously about the kind of world we're encouraging, whether it's the copyright industry who wins or the others when it's posed that way. No doubt both are going to be present. There will be copyright and there will be alternative models. New business models are being developed all the time that don't rest on traditional copyright. So these kinds of developments are going to happen. The question is whether they're going to happen with us as sentient, conscious, concerned people and not just sitting in the ivory tower of academia, but actually being able to engage not only with the super... Uh, It's what you see, which is all the content that's out there and you know, all the buttons you can push and your interactive TVs and our Skyping and our doing whatever we do, our everyday lives, but with what all that means in terms of the implications for how we value human life, not just here in the West, but far beyond and what choices those people make. So that's why I'm raising these questions. It isn't because I want to escape from the everyday policy world. I, live, I inhabit that quite a lot of the time. What I'm saying is you can inhabit that and lose sight of the fact. And in a way, as Roger Silverstone, who founded our department, the Stone, of course, um, would have said, mediation is the environment in which we live. The Internet has become so core that it's almost taken for granted by so many people, except those who don't have easy access. And for those who, must, who do, it's receding into the narrative, the social imaginary of everyday life, <coughs> informing our expectations. And all I'm asking us to do is to say, hold on a minute. If we're like this now, where are we going? So, thank you.